co-founder and chief executive officer of Clinispan Health, Desmi McDaniel is one of my new best friends. Not only has he been a career entrepreneur, he's an alum of Venture for America. Venture for America is a prestigious entrepreneurial fellowship where he worked with different technology startups, and he did it across many functions of business, such as sales, marketing, and operations. Desmi has founded and or grown startups from inception, as well as consulted with early stage startup companies over the years. His own company, Clinispan Health, has just touched my heart because of the work it's doing to make sure it is inclusive and equitable for all peoples. Enjoy the conversation. Desby, welcome to Ask JBH. Thank you so much for having me, Ms. Janice. Glad to be here. Oh, it's a delight to have you here. Your reputation precedes you and it is brilliant. One thing though, you're a North Carolina native just like me. And I think there's no better place to start than, than with your upbringing. Tell us about it. Yeah, so um, I'm from rural North Carolina, I'm a small town called Eden, North Carolina. Um, and you know, there it's, I would say what you think of as your typical maybe rural experience, right? Um, Oh, we played Eden in high school when I was a girl years ago. What? Wow. I'm from Tarboro, you know. And so we played you guys in our conference back then. More at high school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, that was back when um, when I was in school, we were segregated. So it was black school Uh to black school. I think you're a little bit different setup now. Wow. Wow. Such a small world. That's such a small world. Yeah. so yeah, like I said, I think I think of it as your kind of typical rural experience, you know, uh, that you're riding dirt bikes and four wheelers and you're outside and, and um, kayaking on riverbanks and things like that. Um, so that's the kind of background that I come from. Uh, think of myself as, you know, I always said a country boy is how I think of it, right? Uh, that that's the experience I come from. Um, but I've always had these, I think, uh, big city dreams. Um, and so I think that's what I'm really uh, working towards and focus on is, you know, being in an area like in LA, New York, and, and what that experience is like. Um, and so coming up for me, I feel like that's always what I aspire to is like, I'm from Eden, North Carolina, I want to know what New York is like, and what Los Angeles <laughs> is like. Um, so I feel like that was kind of something that drove me um, and my experience, um, and, and really my ambitions, right. Um, and I feel like I'm still just acting on those today, um, that I'm working towards kind of being that that uh, big city uh, presence um, and being able to kind of uh, have my life be in one of those big cities and it revolve around what that urban area is like uh, versus my rural experience. Well, it sounds to me as though you're really a big thinker and you're thinking beyond the immediate. And I love that. Uh, from your time at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, what stands out for you the most then? Because, you know, Chapel Hill isn't a big city, but it certainly gave you a window to the world. It's an it's yes. impressive school. Yeah. So coming out of high school for me, um, I didn't feel ready for the big city. So what Chapel Hill actually felt pretty big to me at the time. Um, I think for me, I, I actually felt out of place as a student. Um, to begin my time at UNC. Um, I think um, I come from, you know, Eden being rural, it's also an impoverished community. Um, You know, my family was on food stamps. Um, And so I come from that kind of background. And I think that 
made me feel uncomfortable at times, like I didn't belong at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I think that was one of my first kind of challenges for personal growth, right, is how do I, um, how am I able to handle uncomfortability, right? Uh, so that was one of my first challenges as soon as I stepped on campus. Um, and, and I've grown to throw myself in uncomfortable situations because I found the most growth there. So that's one of the biggest lessons I took from college um, at UNC Chapel Hill. Another big experience for me was actually the entrepreneurship minor at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, so while it was a minor, it was actually the most impactful academic experience I had. And it really it was because it was experiential. Um, we would go and actually do things uh, versus most classes. I would read in a textbook about actual event happenings, and then they would test me on how well I could remember what the book said um, versus with the entrepreneurship minor. Um, it was it would teach us things about how to listen and understand when someone has a problem and how to ideate about solutions and actually put that in front of them and get direct feedback. So the concept of direct feedback and experiential education was really uh, new for me and exciting um, and impactful for me. So I think those are two things that anytime I'm talking about my college experience, I always talk about those two things, how uncomfortable I felt um, and how I finally found a level of comfort um, to be able to stay within the community and gain value from it and create value for it. Um, and really how that entrepreneurship minor was so impactful for me. Um, and I think it's a huge reason that I'm sitting here chatting with you today. That's beautiful. You know, that certainly had to have fed into it, along with, I'm sure, so much else that uh, happened in your life. Here, he, here's the thing, though. You're currently a tech entrepreneur, and your company, Clinispan Health, is a software platform that helps to access clinical research. You yeah. also provide patient recruitment to communities of color. How was Clinispan idea born? Yes. That's a great question. So it was born out of kind of a, a um, two-part anecdote, right? So I have been a tech entrepreneur my whole career. Um, I was in a fellowship called Venture for America. Um, that was a great experience for me. I, I worked in startups. I was an early team member with other tech startups, able to learn from founders, uh, network with founders. So that was a huge part of it, right? So the entrepreneurial bug uh, had already bit me in college. I then went into Venture for America and I was, I knew I wanted to start my own company. Um, and actually the reason, uh, just kind of a step back, the reason that I decided to be an entrepreneur, uh, one concept I heard in college that has stuck with me to this day is that organizations are the biggest change agents for communities. Mm. So when I learned that and believed in that idea, I decided that I had to start, develop, and grow organizations because that is how I could then impact my community. And so that is what I went into college and this fellowship knowing that I was trying to get the quickest path to starting my own company. Um, so along with that ambition to start my own company, my, my aunt was actually um, dealing with breast cancer. Um, she thankfully beat it. But in her post-chemo experience, she was taking um, post-chemo medicines. And even though doctors assured her she would not, she always saw the rarest side effects. So at that time that I was actually searching for the company I wanted to start and, and grow, I had this familial experience with my aunt um, that really impacted me. 
Um, and I wanted to figure out how I could solve that problem on a systemic basis where my aunt would then have uh, medicines that affected her more acutely. Um, and so the ambition that I was acting on along with the impact that that created for my aunt uh, really helped me to decide that I wanted to focus on uh, equity in healthcare and specifically equity in clinical trials and drug development. Uh, well, and so wait, that was really the motivation for me behind Clinispan Health. I, I, I love that. And there's so much that we want to dig into in there. Uh, when you talk about equity in healthcare, for our family listening who may not be as aware of historic racial health study disparities, explain that, please. Yeah, so to break that down uh, simply, um, I'll give some data points. So the U.S. currently is made up of about 40% people of color. Um, that's across all the uh, minority racial and ethnic groups. But the rate of inclusion for people of color is as little as two up to only 16%, um, which means that there is not fair representation in a drug trial, let's say ibuprofen even, for example. So when you and I take ibuprofen, uh, Janice, for example, we might take in proper dosage amounts and see inadver inadvertent side effects and have overall lower health experiences with a drug simply because more people that look like you and I were not in the trial to test the drug. So that really is the problem that we're addressing. And that has been a longstanding problem um, that we are trying to leverage technology um, in order to solve now. And this challenge that you're meeting, especially with equity in the health arena, is not just one that is owned uh, on the side of the manufacturers, the developers of uh, drugs. It also exists in communities from places of yes. distrust or previous experiences. You're yes. familiar with Miss Evers' voice, right? And yes. the other specifics that might come to mind in there, such yep. as women. Uh, I, I think it's important to share where the community is that you're looking to serve uh, on this trust or this, uh, this absoluteness around their health. Yeah, so we actually uh, are doing what we feel is a novel concept. Um, so we're actually leveraging for the clinical research industry. So we're, uh, we like to think the first and only company actually leveraging um, influencer marketing for clinical research. So to your point about where people in these communities are, they're now in digital communities, right? They're on Facebook, they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok. How do we meet them there? So these pharma sponsors that we work with as customers have not adapted their content and marketing strategies to communicate in culturally competent ways via social media. So Clinispan Health has taken a digital community approach where we create content and meet people on the channels that they want to be uh, met on with this content. Um, and so we're really, what we think of, how we think of this is we're um, taking kind of clinical research's legacy marketing approaches and we're updating them to the digital communities and infrastructure that we have with social media tools today. Um, and well, so- let me, Desi, let me ask you this. And based on your opinion, what are the, or data, what are the key factors that have contributed to the lack of diversity and representation in the clinical research field? Yeah, so we do have data around this. We actually have been doing our own internal studies uh, with a few partners to understand these uh, discrepancies more acutely. 
Um, and number one, frankly, is trust. The word we've used a couple of times is uh, from experiences like the Tuskegee syphilis study, uh, from experiences like the Henrietta Lacks uh, DNA uh, situation. And, and share a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, the Tuskegee syphilis study uh, was a study done um, at Tuskegee University uh, around African-American men um, who they were trying to see how they could uh, cure syphilis. Um, and they, these men um, actually during that time, um, they found the cure for syphilis during this study, but they did not actually introduce it to the men because they wanted to keep them as study subjects. Uh, and so they didn't make when you them say they didn't introduce it to the men. You mean the men were duped about what they were participating exactly, in? Exactly, exactly. So they were misled about they were misled about injected with it. Yes, exactly, exactly. So they were misled about having found the cure uh, and never having access to that cure and staying a part of this study that was uh, a, a longer period of time. Um, and a lot of those men actually died as a result of not receiving that newly found cure. Um, and with Henrietta Lacks, um, they actually ended up keeping her DNA um, and her family had no knowledge of this. Um, and they were continuing to use that DNA as intellectual property and other uh, developments that they were making. Um, and the family, again, had no knowledge of this and were getting no kind of benefit uh, from this. Uh, and so those are the types of situations. And the Henrietta Lacks study worked in the field of care for. Say that one more time, I'm sorry. Share, share with us what Henry Lack's study actually meant to the world in terms of medical. Yeah, so um, it's, it's lost on me at the moment, but I know they were uh, exactly, but they were developing a lot of medicines uh, that they could use to uh, cure a lot of diseases within people. Um, and again, I think the issue was that the family had no knowledge of this uh, and they were using someone's uh, bodily intellectual property or bodily property uh, to develop drugs uh, without creating value for that individual or their family in the state, right? In, so I in think each of these instances, you're talking about African-Americans who participated in the advancement of medical treatments without knowledge of how they were participating, exactly. nor any representation back to their families or communities in a specific way for that. That's what you're describing. And, yes. uh, and that is the platform in some ways for why there is a mistrust of the medical community. Yes. Uh, by uh, people of color, not just That's black. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Because people don't want to go through similar types of experiences, right? They don't want to get into studies that they are uh, used and abused in, in any ways, uh, but especially ways that are not um, made privy to them or, or that they understand. So um, what yes, if we move it forward, if we move it forward around how you're working with Clinispan Health, then you are looking at ways to actually engage these communities, especially yes. the younger members of the, the and, and the digitally engaged uh, members of the community in their own health. How do you then envision the future of digital health and what is it that um, Clinispan Health is going to do to impact this? For sure, for sure. Great question. So um, one thing that actually came out of experiences like that is informed consent. 
Um, so that isn't a ClinSpan health specific thing. That's kind of a clinical trial uh, process uh, innovation that has happened since things like the Tuskegee syphilis study, um, where any patient going into a study has to sign informed consent documents. So they walk you through every part of what you'll be experiencing with this clinical trial, whether you'll take placebos, uh, whether it's um, invasive or non-invasive and all of those aspects. Uh, that was not something that was present um, around the time of the the Tuskegee syphilis study. So that's one kind of industry improvement that has helped to create more trust because they actually give you all of the information. Um, now what ClinSpan Health does is we kind of expound upon that. So we leverage the influencers in social media to educate the community about these changes. So we educate them about the fact that informed consent is now a part of the process, which means that you can have higher trust. So we act kind of as a guide to the proper education and information to people in these communities uh, because people, they want to be educated, right? They want to know and understand more. What we saw was the COVID pandemic actually accelerated people's general knowledge around how drugs are developed and how that's important. Um, and so a lot of uh, what we leaned on was the fact that people wanted to know more about the COVID vaccine and understand how vaccines are developed, um, how that could be developed so quickly and all of these other things. Um, and so we act as a guide in education is how I think of that, that we, we point you to the trusted uh, platforms and content um, so that you can learn about clinical research and make a proper decision um, with having all of the knowledge and trust and confidence in making that decision. I love that so much. And as a matter of fact, we talked about being fellow North Carolinians, one of the key figures in the development of the COVID uh, 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 vaccination is a North Carolinian herself and yes. happens to be African-American. Yes, Kismekia Corbett. Yeah, yes. yeah. We, we actually, I think we're on, she was on an Afrotech Future 50 list last year and I was on it this year and I happened to see that. So yeah, shout out to North Carolina again. Hey, well, you know, many entrepreneurs today are younger and younger and digitally supported in the development of their companies. Are there any challenges that you faced while building and scaling Clinispan Health that can become lessons learned and shared here now? Yeah. Um, I want to say there are so many. Um, there are so many. I'm, I think I'm thinking about what are the best ones to share. Maybe not cliche, right? But there is one that I think comes up quite a bit um, that is just very real uh, of a struggle for me at the moment. Um, fundraising. Um, so I think fundraising in general uh, is its own challenge. Um, I do think fundraising as a uh, Black entrepreneur, I think, sometimes does present its own separate challenges. Um, so I think just there, I think you want to be very prepared for a lot of emotional work. I actually think that's not an aspect of fundraising that people talk about is how do you handle the rejection? How do you handle the nose? Like, what are the personal conversations you have with yourself to come back the next day and still talk to three, four, five more investors um, that most of them are going to say no, right? So I think that's one big lesson um, is that you need to be really prepared for that. Um, and you really need to be ready to do the emotional work and the personal work um, to be your best self in the business. I, I don't think that's discussed enough, kind of the vulnerability 
um, that you have as a, a founder who's raising funds and how you have to you know, navigate all of these things. So that, that's one big thing that I'm currently experiencing um you know that before that, before you before you leave that point desby because it is a huge one and it continues to be one for people of entrepreneurial nature regardless of whether they started their companies or not i do want to make point that you and i can connect after this conversation on someone dr rodney sample uh dr sample's company has been awarded um grant that actually is a federal grant allowing for investment in tech startups and tech companies. And so one of the things he does that I admire so much amongst the many things I admire about him is he works on that principle that everybody isn't gonna get a yes from him, but everybody's gonna get a positive experience from him when they seek that. And your comment about the emotional work that is required is so important, I believe, because so many people, remember I'm an entrepreneur and I was a startup and I continue to be a startup uh, entrepreneur because I continue to innovate and, uh, and and develop products that go to, and services that go to market. But I think you're hitting it dead on is that so many of us, as we're building that thing that we're going to take to market we're not taking care of ourselves in that process yes. and so when we get those rejections it's not only a personal rejection it's oh my god is this thing going to die right you know um so yes. I, I i i really would love you to uh walk through where you handle that over the next 12 to 18 months. And let's come back and talk about what you learned from it, because I think it is a conversation in and of itself that is so important. Sweden has still, I think, the highest per capita um, entrepreneurship of any nation mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah, we, yeah, we may wanna look at, you know, uh, what's happening there. Now, that country is a strong supporter for mm -hmm. entrepreneurship in a different way, but you hit something that's really important. Are there other lessons learned uh, at this point, being that you are such a sound company in such a quick way? Yes, um, I would say don't scale too fast. Um, I think that that's something that we made the mistake of earlier. Um, and I feel that, you know, we have now since recovered from that, I think. Um, but for some amount of time, I know at least maybe a quarter, we were not sure. Um, and we thought that may have been the wrong decision uh, because just as quickly as things were going up, they could have gone down. Um, and we really felt um, that we should have just been more methodical. We should have been more methodical. Uh, we should have did more customer discovery. We should have been like paying more acute attention to the data. Um, so we started combing through all of these things we should have done before actually trying to scale uh, what we were doing. Um, and so I would just caution people not to scale too fast. Um, I think that there is a lot of value in figuring out your foundation um, and then charting your magnified scale, right? Um, that going from 10 to uh, 1,000 um, is better if you understand how to go from 1 to 10 as acutely as you can, right? Um, 
So I think that's that's something that I would caution people to do is not to scale too fast. Um, really feel like you have a grasp on um, your foundational parts and aspects of the business uh, before scaling. Um, because once you scale, some of that foundation is going to get rocky and shaky and you're going to come have to come back uh, to make it solid again. Right. Um, so I think, again, the better that you can have that foundation established, uh, the less rocky it'll be as you scale. Um, so that's another thing that we've been dealing with. But I would say are maybe on the upside of that experience at this point. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about entrepreneurship, so often it's not just that great idea that you have, it's also those uh, idea infusers, the people in your community or in your family who have uh, been important to you. From a very personal level, I know you mentioned your aunt's uh, challenges with breast cancer were highly informed how you went about developing and why you developed uh, Clinispan Health. But has there been any one person in your life thus far who's been a huge contributor to helping you define who you are, especially as an entrepreneur? For sure. So I did feel to bring this up uh, earlier when I talked a bit about my upbringing, but um, I was actually raised by my dad as a single dad uh, with my sister and myself. And I think that's not maybe something you see often, at least in that gets coverage, right? Um, it's single black fathers, I think, who uh, do a great job of, of raising and molding and guiding their children. And I think uh, my dad is a, is a pillar for me. Um, I think he is, you know, the person I aspire to be in so many ways. Um, and the person that I look up to, um, that motivates me, uh, that guided me and continues to guide me. Um, so I think he, he is the person that I would speak to that has really helped define who I am and, and who I want to be. Um, he really, some of the things he did when I was growing up was really just push me to be a community leader, push me, you know, he let me know that I represent communities, you know, I represent, um, you know, African-Americans and, and and males and all these other different identities, I represent that group. You know, I was in, um, you know, um, AP classes in high school and, and I usually was the only black student, you know, in my classes. And uh, something that he always told me then was, you know, that those people in that class might develop how they think of black males based on how they experience you. And so you have to remember that you represent more than just yourself when you're in that classroom. You represent me as a black male. You represent your uncles, your grandfather, everyone else that you might know. And so I think he developed this community leader mindset in me from an early age um, that I just continue to try to act and grow on, I think, at this point. Um, and even doing things like pushing me to speak. I remember, you know, so I, I had pretty good grades growing up. Um, and, and my dad would always have me talk to other students who were my peers, right? They, these were people I had uh, was in the same grade level with. But he would have me go speak to them about how to improve their academic outcomes. Um, and so, you know, I, I remember being uncomfortable with that to start and not actually feeling like that was my place and that I was called to do that. Um, and today I speak in front of people all the time. You know, I'm doing it at this moment, speaking about uh advice and how to and helping to guide others just based on my experience 
So everything that I am today, my dad planted seeds for. Um, and I think I've just done a good job of watering them and growing them. Oh my goodness, you know, I'm 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 working very hard to hold back tears, uh, tears of joy and also poignant ones. Uh, so often when we see um, African Americans and people of other uh, 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 ethnicities and cultures as well. In particular, though, African-Americans are, hi, mom, thank you, mom, thank you, God, thank you, mom. Um, and to hear you give accolade to your dad as a Black father is, it's, it's, it's touching for me as well. My dad was hugely instrumental uh, in our family. Mom and dad were very much in love up until the day uh, that, he passed away. And so I had a mom and a dad in my home. The point I'm making is I had a black father who was very active in our families as well. And that is not something, not only that is talked about uh, in a healthy way, I think it's not even uh, believed to exist yes. uh, that often. That and is the worst part for me, I think, Ms. Janice, is that People don't even think that exists. And so I always take my platforms and my chances to share that it does and that my dad is one of them. So I wanted to make sure to highlight that here today for sure. Here's to your dad. Let's have, I'm drinking tea. I don't know what you're drinking. You have water. water. Here's to him. Here's to your dad. Mm. And listen, the name Desby rings from my tongue so so beautifully. Is there any history or any story to your name? So it's funny, I'm actually named after my dad. Um, as far as we have the same first and last name, but different middle names. So I'm technically, I'm not a junior. Um, <laughs> so I think that's always interesting. Um, my name is Desby John Trail McDaniel. His name is Desby Tyrone. Um, his is also spelled with an S and mine is spelled with the Z. So my, my mom, I feel like, was really in, in himself a really creative about these nuanced differences. Um, but actually, his name, um, so my grandfather was in, I want to say, the Vietnam War. I mean, he had a friend in the war named Desby. Um, and he actually died. May he rest in peace. Um, and so I think one of the kind of um, parting gifts to that friend was actually naming um, his son after him. And so that is actually where our name comes from. Um, and it was passed to me um, from my dad. And was the what was the soldier uh, who died in Vietnam? Uh, was he African American, the one with the name Desby? So I'm not a hundred percent sure. That's now that you ask me that, that's not a detail of the story that I've ever actually asked or been informed about myself. So I think I'm going to have to take that question to them, actually. Do, do. The reason I asked you was purely of a personal note, because I know that, and I'm sitting here old enough to be your grandma, right? We're several generations apart if generation is considered to be 20 years, and yet our experiences in the parts of North Carolina we grew up in were very similar. So while many things did change from my generation to yours, many things remained the same. And you're sharing a, a reflection on soldiers dying in Vietnam. I remember uh, conversations and actually experiencing it myself, Desby, where so many of the young men who went to school uh, with my siblings um, didn't come home from Vietnam as well, African-Americans who were uh, sent there. So, you know, the community got kind of wiped out in a big way yeah. 
And I, that's another thing that I don't think we've done a big job on, necessarily an important job on, is sharing the many African. And we talk about the African-Americans who through slavery built the economy and the stability, early stability of the United States as a nation. I don't think we've done as uh, diligent a job uh, in talking about those who also provided so much of the foot soldiery in the yeah. later wars. And uh, Vietnam is the only one I think we declare to have fought in a war of, mm -hmm. you know, of our uh, introduction. So yeah, that, that's why I brought it up. Uh, but mm -hmm. you know, you're doing so much that I know your dad is proud of and that your family, you and your sister and your dad appear to be a very close uh, relationship. How are you defining success? And is your idea of success the same as his? So I would say immediately no to I think my idea of success is totally different than his. <laughs> um, the thing about my dad, I think that I find interesting is he is a very um, content person. He's very easy to satisfy, very easy to make happy, very easy to, I think, find common ground with. And I think I'm the opposite. <laughs> um, like, I feel like I'm always thinking about things in such a large way. I'm always trying to shoot for this goal and that goal, and I'm never content. Um, I'm always searching for the next thing. Um, and so I think those are some differences that I've noticed about me and my dad uh, that ultimately definitely make us define success differently. Um, I think for him, so, he looks so, at- So let me, let me challenge you a little bit. If not challenge, allow me to have you think that out loud a little bit. May I be Auntie, J Auntie JVH for Please a do, please do, please okay, do. Okay, I'm Auntie right now. Uh, when you say your dad is easily pleased, uh, perhaps your dad is pleased, simply pleased. And by that, I mean, um, that's the- our history as African-Americans, particularly in the Eastern United States, uh, which happens to be one of the lowest income per capita areas of the United States, um, many of us learn to find small pleasures. And by that, I mean, you, you've heard recently and you're hearing currently a lot of conversation on, um, on mental health. One of the ways African-Americans have historically kept ourselves from wigging out is to find those things and be dynamic about those things that we could find pleasure in. Mm -hmm. We live in a world where it feels that everything is working against you politically, economically, and to a point that it starts to work against you spiritually, right? Um, it becomes important to have a balance you can't be so unhappy. You can't be so held back. You can't be so bridled that you continue to have a great experience as a human being without having something to counterpart to that. And so small pleasures. For many of us, it was working in the fields for white people by day, but also tending a small garden, even if it was only four by four feet. Uh, for ourselves, you know, it may have been creating songs. It be many different ways we find it, and so we we. It's not that we're contented with our lot in life so much as it is we find a way to 
to, to, to enjoy a gratification or to have honor a place we are. So yeah. it is a celebration of your dad's generation and your granddad's generation that you have the luxury to be ill content with things as they are. I don't think your dad is so much um, happy or easily contented as he has found a way to enjoy his own mental health. And I would guarantee you, he's far more impatient for your success and the things that would deny you opportunity than he was for his because of his realization of the reality of where circumstances were in the in in the eco, eco and uh, political circumstances he was growing up versus those you're growing up in. Does that make sense to you? That makes total sense. I mean, when you paint the picture that way, like, you know, I think that makes total sense. It's like that there's just so much burden on, you know, because I think about it even today for me, I think that sometimes I feel so much burden maybe as a as a black man in society that I don't even want to get up and take steps because someone's fighting me to not take a step in that direction. And so I think I heard it in a way that is like he finds simple pleasures to be able to deal with the mostly non-pleasurable situations that life, you know, puts him in that he has to be in. I mean, I think that makes total sense. And I would agree that, you know, even based on conversations I've had with him, that what you're saying is true. Um, that yeah. he talks to me. There's a book by an author, a, a, a long deceased, Lorraine Hansberry. I don't know if you are aware of who Lorraine Hansberry I'm is. Not. Okay, she, she, she's a black female writer and her book is called A Raisin in the Sun. Okay, I'm not raising this thing. Yeah, A Raisin in the Sun was taken to theater twice. Uh, I think Diddy did it last, but don't let me call out names and be in error here, okay? But dynamically, there was a movie made of it, and uh, Sidney Poitier played, mm -hmm. uh, played the male lead in it. In the book, there is a matriarch called Mama Lena, and she has this simple plant that fits in a pot that can center in the width of how long my uh, my hands can hold. And Desby, uh, this, this plant sits in her window of her kitchen. And she and three generations of her family live in this one apartment. Um, and the story tells uh, their life moving from her husband who had an insurance policy that they were able to have delivered and how they mm -hmm. use that to move their circumstances out of an apartment into a home. Mm. Mama Lena would appear to be a faith-based, gospel-singing mama who was just happy and thought her family was doing just great and loved her husband, Walter Sr., who left them the legacy of an insurance policy. Um, her son, Walter Jr. is highly impatient to get mm -hmm. his life moving by owning his own business and no longer working in his instance for the white man, uh, for the man, I think he called uh, the system, he called it the man. Um, mm -hmm. 
he has a sister who is being educated at college and she's having all those different experiences, meeting people from different parts of the world than her tight little apartment that she and her brother and his wife and their son and her mother uh, share. And so without giving the whole story, because I encourage you to read the book before you watch the movie, uh, the movie is an old movie. I believe it's in black and white. Uh, and it's one of Sidney Poitier's best performances, I think, ever. Uh, but it, it wraps itself around, um, I think, symbolically, the circumstance of Desby, your dad, where Mama Lena is actually the activist even though she doesn't have the loudest voice, she has the strongest mm -hmm. voice in that family. And mm -hmm. it's her ability to find simple pleasure in supporting her family forward that allows her daughter to study to become a physician or a dancer or whatever she chooses, that allows her to keep her daughter-in-law from making horrible decisions around more horrible circumstances of their lives and importantly allows her to keep her faith in her son Walter Jr. as he explores his opportunity toward entrepreneurship. You're going to see a lot of synergy from that book and your life and I just encourage you to read it and to enjoy it and come back to me and let me know what you thought of it. I will 100% do that. I feel like the universe just made it where I absolutely have to do that. So that will 100% get done. Well, let's talk about this. In some interviews, you've mentioned, Desby, that you're passionate about tech and about helping others become tech entrepreneurs. Uh, let's, you've shared some of the challenges and lessons learned. What advice do you give to aspiring entrepreneurs? Uh, honestly, it's all mostly simple advice because what I found is um, it's, it's mostly actions, just do it. So that's just the first piece of advice is if you have an idea, do it, act on it. Um, I always learn the most when I take steps, when I take action, um, that if I have a new idea and I don't know if it's gonna work, I'm, I can't sit in a room and say yes or no, it will. I have to actually put it in front of people, get feedback, uh, make those changes after insights, do it again a hundred more times maybe until it's, you know, I tinker with it properly. So that's just my advice. Number one is just do it. I think that's the biggest downfall that I see when I have discussions with people who uh, aspire to be an entrepreneur or, or start their own thing is just that uh, they spend more time just actually asking people about their opinion of whether they should do it or not, or uh, getting advice when I'm like, okay, you've gotten lots of advice. When are you going to actualize and act on some of said advice? Um, and so I think that's just number one. Um, secondly is you need support. Um, I think you do have to start if you don't have support. I would say there have been times where I felt like I was the only person who had this idea and was acting on it. Um, but I've noticed that uh, as you go on your journey, people get bought in at different points. Um, that you might uh, develop your very first product. Someone who you talked to a year ago, you didn't have anything, you have a product now, they love it, they want to be an advisor, they might buy in now. Um, and so I think be willing to go at it by yourself, but always be looking for and open to support as you're going on your journey, because you're going to need that. Um, you know, whether you aspire to 
uh, build a company that goes public and IPOs or whether you aspire to build a uh, family consulting firm, um, you're going to need support. Um, and so, you know, always be on the lookout, I think, for fitting support. Um, those are two big pieces that I would give. Um, if I was to give a third one, um, it would be around skill set. Um, it would be around skill set and mindset, actually. So I think for entrepreneurs, um, that the way I think of entrepreneurship really is that um, you have a, my, a certain mindset and a certain skill set, and you leverage those as tools on your entrepreneur endeavor. So with that said, I think you can be intentional about how you develop the way you think as an entrepreneur and the skill sets that you leverage and how those are married together. You know, I think um, for myself, I have a lot of soft skills. I think I have good communication skills. Um, you know, I, um, I also have the mindset, I think a resourceful mindset that I can do a lot with a little. Um, so those types of thoughts um, and skills, I think, are married together in Clinispan Health, right, where we are communicating to people about uh, clinical research um, and why it's good for them. Um, we are a startup, so of course we're resourceful and we do uh, a lot with a little. So I can, I think, speak about how my mindset and skill sets are both present in the business that I'm building. Um, because the brands that you build are an extension of you. Um, and so I always I'm trying to understand how does uh, Clinispan Health reflect Desby McDaniel and how does Desby McDaniel reflect Clinispan Health? Because the better that I can make those overlap, I think the more impact and growth that I can see. You know, that that that's beautiful. And it does uh, occasion another question for me, uh, for you. And that is many entrepreneurs along their journey are tasking so deeply inward that they are not considering what their voice means to the system at large. Now you've developed a voice that's highly valued, especially in the healthcare systems. Um, it's not everyone's mission to be a voice even as they are building their business. What's your perspective on that? And for newer entrepreneurs who would like to have their journey be a part of a larger conversation, where do you guide them? Yeah, so uh, that's a fair point, first of all, you know, that uh, having a voice uh, might not be everyone's role. Um, and with that said, I think you play a role that feels comfortable for you, right? That um, a lot of times, I think there are background operators who help a company like Clinispan Health grow and create impact that you'll never see their face. You'll never know who they might be. They're just as important um, to the cause as anyone else. So I think what I would uh, tell that person is that you don't have to be the voice uh, of the movement, you know, that you can help the movement operate in the background. You could be the glue that makes the voice and everyone else stick together, right? So just think about, uh, be intentional about the role you carve out for yourself. That's what I would say. Be intentional about the role you carve out. Because if the voice isn't the role that you play, there is a role that is equally as valuable. You just need to discover it and get comfortable, I think, playing that role. Desi, that is so valuable. I, I, I will tell you, you don't get today to pull back 
on anything you've put out there. Once you put it out, especially in a digital world, it can live long yes. and longer than you intended it to. And so I think your your point on being intentional is, is, is very much there. Uh, around the idea of whether or not an entrepreneur has a responsibility to a community beyond the company, the product or service they're delivering, I think is conversation and debate as well. We don't have to have that debate here. There is one thing that um, comes to mind for me. Someone important in my life uh, has been a man named J.L. Armstrong. And um, Reverend Armstrong, although he has enjoyed a dynamic professional career in corporate America, valued the work he did in the church. And I don't know if you're familiar with the church called Fame, First AME uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, yes. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he continues to minister there, not as actively as he did in the past. And he's a young uh, man. He told me years ago when I asked him to come bless a building that I bought as a corporate office here in Southern California, that, um, and I asked him, are you going to be concerned about anyone who may see you in the corporate world here giving a blessing to my building? And mm. he said, well, you know, I work at this company i work for the lord and he told me mm -hmm. everyone has their own ministry you need to learn what that ministry is by listening not by wishing or talking it and then you can live it more completely even before the word authentic had been so beat up that is inauthentic um he was he was expressing coming from one's natural self and therein you'll find your best abilities Here's the question for you. He did refer to my work as a ministry. I happen to be a faith-based person with absolutely no influence to you. Where do you see uh, faith and tech working together? That's a big question right now for a lot of people. And across the world, many people don't necessarily associate faith as religion. Years ago, uh, Andre Crouch and his sister Sandra Crouch on an album, an album of vinyl called Take Me Back, um, uh, which was one of the, which was the title song on the album as well. In the front of it, he had a discussion about faith and religion. And he said, uh, simply, I paraquote him, that uh, religion is a search for God. Faith is a relationship with God. And that mm -hmm. kind of served me well in that. So I've met many people across my professional career who have asked me how my faith plays into that because I've been vocal about my faith uh, and all encompassing of everyone's faith and religious practice. Where do you see that? Are you seeing it as a part of a conversation for younger entrepreneurs today? And what's your perspective or guidance on that? Not knowing where you come from. For sure, for sure. So I do see that conversation. I, I definitely see that conversation had a lot. Um, just literally how you phrased it. It's how does your, let's say the word I hear more is religion maybe, uh, or spirituality than um, the, the word we use faith here. Um, but so I, I talk a lot, I think, or hear a lot of talk about religion and spirituality and how that relates to your journey as an entrepreneur. Um, I think they obviously coincide with one another. 
Um, the way that I think about faith, religion, spirituality is it acts as a, a guide to the individual that um, has a relationship, um, you know, that type of relationship, um, that it should guide them. Um, it should help them make moral and ethnic decisions um, and, and all of the like there. So I kind of see that the same with the business. Your faith should help you make more moral and ethnic and sound business decisions. Um, your faith can help you deal with personal issues in the business. Like where I talked about um, earlier, the fundraising, for example, um, you know, you can get those rejections and then you can go and have your discussion with God about how that has impacted you. And that conversation might make you feel better at the end of it. So that's you leaning on your faith uh, and your relationships, uh, your spiritual relationships in order to be a better entrepreneur. So that's really how I think about it is your faith is another tool that you have uh, to help you be better um, and be guided more um, in the right direction. You know, just There's like, four. sorry, go ahead. Oh, um, I was going to say, just like, you know, it could be a wife or husband who also is a tool that you might uh, deal with that rejection from investors and you might have a conversation with your uh, significant other that makes you feel better. So that's kind of how I think of faith. I think of faith as a, a tool, usually the largest tool that you have um, at your hand to be better as an individual and better as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And does we talk a little bit about this, uh, the idea of whether it be faith or fairness, regardless of where you come from, you're in a high tech world um, and you are in a health sector. As we look at uh, health and humanity, oftentimes access to health is the humane question. And so whether it be faith or fairness, how do you apply that to the development of uh, health tech that allows for the engagement or the benefit to a broad community? We started our conversation around the idea that you're looking to create inclusive recruitment of people into the uh, tech in, into the health environment and you and technology is a huge foundation point uh, for that. So how do you tie those two together, whether it be faith or fairness, how are you tying together? The, uh, yeah, so, uh, I think what I'm about to speak about is maybe more directly fairness, but I feel like there's 100%, you know, faith tied into it, uh, whether that be faith from the Clinton Hill side or faith from the patient side, uh, there's faith in a stronger belief of something, right? That I think um, in our business, the way that that comes across is we get feedback from the communities. So a lot of times what happens in these clinical trials, right? Let's, I'll use a clinical trial protocol as an example. So a protocol uh, is pretty much a long form document that is saying, this is the way this study is gonna be structured and operate. What happens is these former sponsors develop a protocol that might be fit for African-American community. Never once did they go to an African-American person to say, do you understand this protocol? Mm -hmm. And so they're developing something for a community that they get no feedback from the community. And so what Clinton Span Health does is we can get feedback from that community about that protocol. 
that's really where I think fairness comes into play. It's not fair for a group of people who aren't from your community to develop something for your community and never ask your community if this is a fit. And so what we do is we are the bridge between those two groups. The former sponsor who has never been in this community, this community who doesn't understand former speak, we become that common ground and we help them to understand that uh, in a more layman's terms manner. Um, that's really, I think, where fairness comes in. Um, and, you know, I think from a faith standpoint, you know, without speaking to religion or spirituality, I think our community has to have faith that they can trust our decision making um, and that we're making decisions on their behalf that they would make as well. Um, and so I think, like I said, I see fairness and faith wrapped all up in that uh, equation uh, for how we do that in our business model. Beautifully spoken, and I think with intention. Um, so whether it be um, faith, spirituality, experience, or just the incredible success of, uh, 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 of Clinistan, here is the question I have for you. Are you looking at launching any future companies uh, soon? Yes, I would say soon um, is to be determined. Um, so I'm very focused on my journey with ClinSpan Health right now um, and creating impact um, through this company as a vehicle. Um, I do see myself as a serial entrepreneur. Um, I do plan to launch other ventures. Um, actually, after ClinSpan Health, I would like to do something more creative. Um, and so I, I think I'm going to be venturing, venturing into some creative lanes, um, you know, once we have hit what we consider the finish line for ClinSpan Health. Well, remember I offered to introduce you to Dr. Rodney Sample and his beautiful wife, who are, I think I may have mentioned, let me make certain I mentioned, are looking specifically at startup tech companies in North Carolina. So I, I'll forward to introducing them to you. Before we say goodbye, we gotta go four for four. I'm gonna ask you four questions to which you'll give me four answers. There are no wrong or right answers, but all the answers are right. Let me say there are no wrong answers. Um, and the first one is you get to invite four people to dinner from any time in history to present. Who's at your table, Desby? And well, why? And why? I would be remiss if I did not have to first answer uh, Miss Janice, I would love to have you at the table. Um, but no, really, um, I actually was talking about um, an experience from a personal standpoint, um, Regional F. Lewis. I've read about him being one of the first African-American males to build a billion dollar company. Um, I actually have read about you as well, being the first African-American woman to do that. Um, that was actually something that was really inspiring to me. And so I actually will put you and Regional F. Lewis as the first two people uh, at that table. Um, so, yeah, that I had to put that out there. I think the other people I would name, I, I would be honest to say Jay-Z. I would love to have dinner with Jay-Z. Um, I don't know if you've seen on social media uh, where they ask <laughs> um, 500K or dinner with Jay-Z. Um, I think I might would pick dinner with Jay-Z, although most people would call me crazy. But, you know, knowledge is power. Um, who else would I add there? I think I would definitely pick Michael Jordan. Um, I love Michael Jordan. 
Um, I grew up a Michael Jordan fan. You know, going to UNC is the same school as Michael Jordan. Um, so I would love to chat with Michael Jordan and probably ask him some of his uh, trash talk stories. I feel like he's like a top trash talker. So I would be interested in learning more about uh, some of those stories. <laughs> and he's deep up in that NASCAR. He's a serial entrepreneur as well. Um, actually, you'll get to meet, uh, let's see, you said Reggie, you won't get to meet him unless you meet him mm -hmm. later. Um, we'll get to meet, I'm sure, um, after we finish this podcast. I'll talk with you about where that may be an opportunity. Uh, and with Jay-Z and with uh, Big Michael, I think you'll meet them. I think what you're doing will be of interest to them. And they are, remember, they are entrepreneurs. They had their starts in sports and in, um, and in music. Uh, but their interests and their intellects expand uh, beyond those uh, those sectors. So I think you'll get to meet them as well. I think you're right. And uh, I think you just made it as real as it could have been for me. Yeah, yeah. So look, let's go two for four. Uh, what music, particular by name of authors, are you listening to right now? And, um, and why are you listening to them? What are they doing for you? Yeah, so I listen to um, lots of rap music. Tell um, the truth, yeah. tell the truth. Who you listening to, Des? <laughs> so I have to say that uh, my favorite artist right now is NBA Youngboy. Uh, okay. So that, that's my favorite artist. Um, you may have seen some of the things going viral from some of his uh, songs. And J. Cole. So I, I grew up on J. Cole. Uh, he's a North Carolina artist. So You know, I didn't grow up on J. Cole, but I love J. Cole. And uh, one year at uh, A&T's homecoming, you know my school, right? Yep. Yeah, Jiho. Yeah, yeah, Jiho, yeah, boo. Uh, and at, uh, <laughs> one year, uh, uh, J. Cole was there, and I never heard of this young artist. As a matter of fact, he was just coming out. Um, mm -hmm. And... Um, I was listening to his lyrics so hard. It was the first time I'd experienced um, music in a convention venue where mm -hmm. I wasn't hearing the music so much for the message. And I had to mm -hmm. go back and really go, wow, he got some beats here too. But it was the lyrics that I was listening to. Uh, mm -hmm. You're nodding or did, did he kind of, I mean, that's a different kind of from J. Cole, I think. Um, I think it was a, it's a, it was a, growing up, it was, me and my dad talked about this. It was a certain level of intellectuality in his music that I could appreciate, I think. Um, that there was, there were these ways of uh, speaking and, and thinking that other, I think, rap artists didn't provide me at least you know him mentioning Shakespeare in his music for example yeah. was something that when I heard that um him taking like classical culture and integrating that in rap music I think was something that was uh so novel for me and exciting to me as a person who you know I felt like I thought of myself as an intellectual so those are the things yeah, I think he, about he, brought, he did he, he brought a certain academic strength to yeah. his early music. I, 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 yeah. I pretend he's continuing to do that. But, you know, when it first hit me, it was very early in his career. Yes. Um, yes. When, when I was growing up, 
Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder brought consciousness mm. to us. They didn't have huge academic background, but they had strong street knowledge. You couldn't say they had mm. street cred because they became musicians so early in life, they didn't have time to develop street, street cred in sense yep. of being out there and then rapping about it. But they yep. did bring a community consciousness to their music. As a matter of fact, I would say what's going on is still one of the most highly relevant mm -hmm. pieces of music ever, which is a sad commentary on how we advance as people. Um, yeah. But J. Cole brought that academic perspective that gave you that that connection from history to present to future. Exactly. Is that what you felt too? 100%, 100%. And to that point, one of the things that I think he did for me, just listening to him as an artist versus others is like, he made college seem cool. You know, he made it seem cool to have a college degree. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like most rap artists, you know, are, are talking about school of hard knocks and not skipping college and not liking school, skipping out on school, all these other things that you know, Jay Cole talked about how school was a platform for him, how he went to St. John's to be in New York so that he could eventually then get his introduction to Jay-Z. Um, and so he talked about how college was a platform for his journey and not how it felt like. Um, yeah, your social security number could get, be as, as representative of you as your serial number could. Yes, exactly. Yep. With, without dissing either. Exactly, exactly, yes. So I appreciated that, I think, quite a bit. Again, especially as someone who was an you know, aspiring college student and intellectual um, and still wanted to, I think, feel like my community was being represented in music, if that made sense. He met all of those things in the middle very well. Yeah. Who else you listen to? You got to give us four. Yeah, so uh, I would say, who else? Um, a female artist that I really listen to, um, SZA. So I really like SZA. Um, I haven't listened to her new album as much, uh, but I do like her Control album. Um, who would be the last one? Why? 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 Oh, why? Uh, the softness of her music. It's very serene, very calming. Uh, it creates like just this relax, relaxing feeling when I listen to that music uh, that makes me feel really at ease. Um, and so I would say that's why I really like Scissor's music. It's like the sound of her voice and the melodies and all of that, uh, really soothing. Um, another would be Summer Walker, another female artist. Um, I would say the same, really soothing music, really relaxing. Um, I feel at ease when I listen to it. Um, and so those are really, I think, the reasons why I listen to those two. It's quite the opposite for, I think, J. Cole and NBA Youngboy. It's like an upbeatness um, and level of uh, heightened energy that I feel from their music that I really like. And so it's kind of spectrum. Um, and I was going to say, I actually ch make my music choices based on how I, uh, it makes me feel and how I want to feel. And so whatever artists I choose to listen to at the time, it's, it's mainly me choosing how I want to feel, and their music is a tool to get me there, if that makes sense. Hey, boo, it makes a lot of sense. One of the things I teach people, including my own executives, is play the music that takes you where you want to go. Yes. So, hey, okay, let's go three for four. What four books do you recommend to our family that they must read and why? Yeah, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. 
um, might have heard that a lot, but I think it really shows the counter perspectives, literally, of if you were raised by, you know, a poor dad versus if you were raised by a rich dad, what are the, the tools and resources and ways of operating that you learned? That was hugely impactful for me. Um, the intelligent investor, uh, I think that just teaches you more about some different financial and economic tools that you can leverage. Um, you know, I don't know quite as much as I would like to by this point. Um, and so I think the level of education that that book, excuse me, gave me was really impactful. You know, where I feel like after I read that, I could start having more regular conversations about, you know, stocks and bonds and all of these other financial vehicles uh, that they don't necessarily make you privy to in K through 12 or college, unless, you know, you take a class particularly on that. So those or unless looking, you go to North Carolina A&T State University. <laughs> that too. I did not have the luxury of that, unfortunately. Um, so it sounds like my education was limited. <laughs> well, uh, look, I'm not going to hate on Chapel Hill, actually, because I had a scholarship to Chapel Hill. Uh, but then I spent a summer at North Carolina A&T mm. in a project, in, in a, uh, an educational uh, vehicle called Project Upward Bound. And oh, I heard of Upward Bound before, yeah. Yeah, and I got to ask about myself in different ways, and it just encouraged me that that was the uh, place for me at that time in my life. Yeah. I'm so happy and proud that you got to go to Chapel Hill, though. Okay, thank you, thank you. I appreciate both, that. both of us are representing for the community. Yes, yes, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, okay. What's your third book you're recommending? My third book. My third book. I think I'm going to go away from maybe the intellectual answers I was giving. And I would say that you should read something uh, fiction. So I'm going to suggest one of any Harry Potter books. <laughs> So I, oh, well, I probably I'm not going to do that, <laughs> but it's for the family. I'm sure many will. <laughs> so I, I feel like you can keep that little wizard to yourself. No, that's a joke. That's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> OK, I got great respect and great respect for the author as well. Yeah. So uh, I think just that's one of the all time favorite book series that I have. Um, you know, outside of, like I said, books that were meant for education and like knowledge seeking. Totally um, get it. Totally get it and, and totally support it. And in truth, yeah, you're right. I, I, I read some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I really love Harry Potter. I think, you know, if you uh, aspire to be a storyteller, that you can learn a lot from the storytelling of Harry Potter. It would be the reason that I would say you should read that book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, let's see, another book that I would suggest reading. Um, okay, I'm going to go back maybe to an intellectual book. Um, I'm going to actually say The War on Normal People. Um, that is a book by Andrew Yang, who was a formal, former uh, Democratic presidential nominee. Mm -hmm. um, he actually founded Venture for America. Um, but in that book, he talked about how AI is going to be replacing lots of people's jobs and roles and functions. I think that 
with the rise of chat GBT and all of these AI tools now ever so popular right now, that we are actually living the reality that he was trying to forewarn us about in that book. And so I would suggest that book for anyone who would want to understand how artificial intelligence is playing and will play a role in the everyday lives of people. Um, so that would be the reason I would suggest that. Let me let me encourage you to read some books by Kevin Kelly as well. Kevin, Kevin Kelly. Kelly is someone who uh, I podcasted with. And Kevin Kelly, I won't quote him because I can't remember how to quote him books. But the, <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 uh, the message I got from him around AI and tech replacing jobs was not was that it doesn't replace jobs so much as it puts different job descriptions in place Myself and so the idea that it, you know jobs change right so mm. he has some far deeper thoughts and far many more thoughts i'd love you to read because he is a guru on tech um and he is also a person who has a strong spiritual base to him. And um, he approaches tech and speaks to tech from a place of how it can play, not just for humans, but for humanity. And mm -hmm. I'd love you to read some of his to kind of give some balance to the idea of whether tech is going to take people's jobs away uh, or whether it will redefine how people do the work they do. Um, we are getting fewer people on the earth today. And so tech will have a great opportunity to enhance the experience that those who continue on planet earth have. And I just love to give you that footnote on that. Sure, for sure, albeit, albeit I do hear clearly the recommendation of Andrew Yang's book as well. I wanna make sure you're fully rounded in what you're looking at there because you know jobs and work both of us live from there and sure. you're employing tech in how you look to have work performed as well so maybe uh consider where kevin is speaking about you know the redescription of work versus the replacement of that work. makes that makes sense looking at it as a kind of a supplemental thing versus like it takes the place of something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things he uh, he gave an analogy um, um, in our in the podcasting we did and it 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 was beautiful. It's a very small thing, but it has a big impact in how you look at it. Photography, he said, was looked at by artists when photographer first came out as, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a fake thing and it would mm -hmm. would it take away the work of artists when in wow. actuality it enhanced the work mm -hmm. of artists and it added something to the menu so I'd love you to all he and I didn't talk about this adding to the menu but I'd love you to also consider that you know I employ tech in my work you employ tech in your work I like to think it adds something to the menu versus takes away from it. Um, fair point, very fair point. I definitely hear that added perspective, yeah. Yeah, and it's so, yeah, so let's right. go four for four. And let's this, 
uh, uh, four pieces of advice you give to our, our family listening right now. If you give advice that was given to you by someone else, please give homage to the author of that advice and tell us why you think this is important. Yeah. Um, huh. I'm trying to, again, I think, think of not cliche advice, but I do feel like any advice I get, the simplest advice seems like the best. Um, the first piece that I'll start with, I kind of talked about a little bit earlier, but from an entrepreneurial perspective, um, you want to do the work to understand yourself as an individual as much as you can, because any business or brand that you build is going to be a reflection of you. If you don't know who you are and understand who you are, it's much harder to know and understand who your brand is and who it should be. Mm, mm. That's my first piece of advice is know who you are because you then can connect all of your work back to that foundational person. Um, I think that's just something I've discovered <laughs> in my own experiences, I would say. Um, so that's one piece. The second piece, uh, I'm thinking of a synonym because I don't want to use the word authentic, um, but be yourself. Uh, again, very simple, potentially cliche advice, but what I found is when I'm my very natural self um, and not feeling like I'm playing a role or being someone I don't want to or, or someone that I have to be, that the people and things that are around me are for me. You know, that when I'm trying to be someone else, I have people and things around me that are for someone else. So it doesn't fit like it's supposed to. But when I'm my natural, um, most real and most authentic self, then when I look up the people and the things that I find around me are exactly what I need. Um, and so, you know, commit to being who you want to be and clear space for that person so that you're not continuing to walk on a path of being someone that you're not um, and that you don't want to be. That um, is powerful. That is powerful. And I love that so much because you expand on it Early in our conversation, Desby, you talked about wanting to uh, experience life outside of the rural. And when I first came to Los Angeles, I felt so more out of place than anywhere, even the mm -hmm. man black in, 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 uh, in, in North Carolina, okay? <laughs> and because I felt even more black, you know, everybody out here was pretty and they carried persons <laughs> with other people's initials on it. And, you know, everybody was light skinned and all of that. And here I am, this little black nappy headed, you know, colored girl out of North Carolina thrown into this sea of what, you know, beauty and intelligence and opportunity looked like and none of it looked like me. And mm. I was I was lamenting on that. And my sister, Sandy, who was ahead of me in Los Angeles, and she was light skinned with good hair and beautiful, you know, eyes and the way, the way, you know, people, the way you had to look back then, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, before James Brown said, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. <laughs> he said, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, but he hadn't yet said, and I'm beautiful, right? I yeah. am I is smart, you know, <laughs> none of that was going on, boo. And 
I was just in a flounder. And so I said, no, I can't make it here. I wasn't putting into that equation anything about my brain or any of that. And my mm. sister said to me, you're listening to other people's ideas of who you are. The most mm. expensive real estate you'll ever own is between your two ears. You better make sure you're not living, letting people live in there for free. And mm -hmm. I thought about what she said many times since she passed, uh, and it gave me guidance to how I thought about opportunities. And, you know, so being mean and not taking on characteristics that weren't natural, nor I'm not talking about not stretching yourself and not growing. Those are very different things, okay? I'm talking about growing from the plant, in the, from the soil in which you're planted. Mm. And, 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 and it was really important to me to do that because you can lose yourself to the soul of the city. Many mm. people will say, like Lou Rawls, I don't know if you know who he is, he's saying a lot about, you know, uh, the, uh, some people would say cities don't have souls. I think they do. Uh, but you've got to make sure you keep who you are intact. So I'm, I'm encouraging you. That's powerful. Your advice, number two, is powerful. And this is me playing auntie again, saying, as you continue to visit more and more cities, not just Los Angeles, not just New York, but you're going to visit Shanghai, you're going to visit uh, Dubai, you're going to visit Doha, as you go into these places where they are going to welcome you and they are going to be hungry for what you can bring them. I want you to make sure that you bring them who you are, not just what you have. When you think you're only valued for what you have, you start to lose the value of who you are sometimes. So make sure you bring them both, okay? And it's wrapped up real pretty, so they're going to love it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I feel like you maybe inspired me to speak on a third piece of advice is you need people around you to help build you up. Um, I think that's something that cannot go uh, stated enough. Um, that in those moments where you feel at your lowest, there there needs to be someone um, around you maybe that can help you rem remember who you are, you know, how powerful you are, the impact you create. Um, you know, and, and I think even from the standpoint of, you know, there are statistics around solo founders I think performing differently than co-founders, right? Uh, my co-founders are everything to me. Um, that when we have hard business problems and I can chat through them with them, that I feel a lot better after that conversation than I felt having a conversation in my own head. Um, and so that would be my third piece of advice is have people around you that are smarter and stronger than you that can help build you up and sharpen you. Um, and that is something that I'm always paying attention to, um, you know, as are there skill sets, mindsets, um, or something from this person that I aspire to have? Um, and if so, then I'll spend more time around that person, more energy with that person, um, you know, create value for them and also hope to receive some. So, so that would be my third piece of advice. Um, and number four. Number four. Hmm. Huh, I feel like you have me trying to lend something as powerful as number two. This feels like a hard task. Um, I feel like, again, simple advice. Um, I think don't get, and we've kind of talked about this, but really don't get caught up in 
other people's idea of you. Um, how we talked about knowing you yourself and your brand, other people are going to perceive you and your brand however they see fit. Um, that they may, you know, you might think of yourself as uh, a comedian, right? That let's say you do vocational work, um, you're a general contractor, um, and, and but you are a comedian who is going to comedy shows on the weekends, and you might identify yourself as a comedian. Other people might see you and identify you as a general contractor, you know? So it's like, just because they see you as that does not mean you are not a comedian, right? Um, and so I think that example, it just goes to show that you have to lean into, you know, how you see yourself, how you identify, um, because that ultimately is what's going to define, you know, who you are um, at the end of your life, um, how you saw yourself and the actions you decided to take, um, the decisions you ultimately made are always going to define you, not that someone perceives you as a general contractor when you perceive yourself as a comedian. That won't ultimately define uh, your life. So I think you need to remember uh, that your mind um, shapes your life and not other people's minds, thoughts, and opinions shape your life. You know that may be some of the most powerful advice given on uh, Ask JBH Podcasting. Pastor, uh, are you familiar with Bishop T.D. Jakes? Yes. Okay, so one of the things he taught several services, several sermons ago, was around how there are always going to be people who are not going to see you for where you are because they want to keep placing you where you were when they knew you, you know. And for entrepreneurs, that becomes a thing that in your growth, you know, you don't want to forget people and leave people behind. On the other hand, you can't allow people to keep you there when yes. you are here and when you're going forward, you know. So in my company, I often uh, and regularly challenge my executives to consider, well, what got us here, get us there. That lines mm. up with that future growth. I think that was powerful advice. And I am so thrilled you gave it. And as you yourself said, Desby McDaniel, it's a simple advice. Sometimes the simplest advice is the hardest to follow. Yes, yes, 100%. All the advice I gave, I'm always every day still trying to follow it. Um, and I would say most days I might do a good job. Some days I do not. <laughs> well, today you were dynamic in this conversation of which I pray there are many more. Thank you so much. And from my heart to your home, God bless. Thank you so much, Ms. Janice. This was great.